Good morning, everybody. And those of you online as well, uh, welcome. Welcome to the service. And uh, so um, we are in a series on the wisdom literature of the Bible. And uh, it's just three weeks long. We looked at Proverbs last week. This week we're looking at Ecclesiastes. And next week we're looking at Job. And my own wife asked me, why are we doing this series? And uh, it's kind of out of the blue. I haven't heard you talking about it or anything like that. And I said, well... Because we're going to start another series and I couldn't map it out in time. So this is filling some time in between. But it has been in the plans. I wanted to do this series for like two years. So that's why. Um, it, it's been in, in the plan but not scheduled. So anyways, so today is, uh, is Ecclesiastes. I want, to, I want to invite you, and I forgot to bring it. If you'll, if you'll look at the, um, no, I don't have it, no, the outline, I left it. Anyways, if you look at the outline, I'll try to tell you where we're going with this, because at least a couple of people said, man, that was a lot, and we are covering it. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Good. Thank you. We are, we are covering a lot of material, and, and uh, I, I kind of felt like some people last night were kind of like a little swimming in, in a lot of information, so I want to let you know where we're going. We're going to... Ecclesiastes is a really interesting book. A lot of people tell me, oh, I love Ecclesiastes, and I think... You haven't read it, have you? <laughs> Not really. Uh, it, uh, it has some beautiful passages. That's why I think people love it. I mean, it has some incredibly beautiful passages. But then the writer trashes just about everything beautiful that he brings up. I mean, it's not, if you just keep reading, it, it will disappoint you and will be very, very painful type of experience. And so I'm calling him the unmotivational speaker. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Then we're going to talk about some keys to unlocking Ecclesiastes. Uh, but then I want to really focus on how this, he's a cynic, you know, how a cynic actually brings value to people's lives. Not that you should become a cynic, but that the, this cynical person who is miserable and a cynic actually can make you think in some ways. And then how to move beyond cynicism and where does Jesus come into this whole picture, okay? So that's where we're going. I hope, I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have in here, it's on page 662, page 662. And while you're turning to the passage, I want to remind you that one of our core values at Five Oaks is that understanding the Bible and your place in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. And so when we gather, one of the things that we do is we study, we learn from the Bible, we open our Bibles, and we listen for the Holy Spirit to speak to us through God's Word, and then we reflect on our part in God's story. All right, so we do that week in and week out. So please join me in the prayer of illumination, asking the Holy Spirit to illumine His Word. Almighty God, by Your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, we just bring to you uh, just so many heavy things uh, happening continually in our world. And still think of the war in Ukraine. Um, we pray for justice uh, in that war. We pray for peace in that war, an end. Um, and, and an end that is just and it is right. And, 
And Father, um, shootings just keep happening and happened even just last night in uh, Minneapolis. And so, Father, we so many families impacted by that and so many people impacted and so much grief uh, as this keeps happening all around our world and the violence just keeps escalating. And we bring that to you, Father, and we pray. We pray that you would help us to know what's our part in, in helping, what's our part in praying. Bring peace. Bring peace, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so a while back I heard a couple of hosts of a podcast that I listened to. They were talking about, um, they started out talking about cynicism. They were kind of going to go there in, in uh, I think, as part of the, the episode. And um, they were talking about how deadly it is, <clears throat> how deadly cynicism can be. And one of the hosts said he had heard an interview uh, of Matthew McConaughey, the, the actor, and uh, as, as he remembered it, a journalist got into a car with Matthew McConaughey to, to do a road trip, and he was going to interview him on this long road trip. And when things kind of went silent, went quiet for a little while, Matthew McConaughey put in some, some um, put in or, I don't know, somehow started playing self-help type tapes, talks, kind of motivational talks. And the guy, the journalist, said um, he was thinking, this is a put-on. He, he's kind of playing a role here. He wants me to have as part of the story that he is, uh, listens to self-help tapes. So he said at one point, he goes, you can stop now. <laughs> and McConaughey goes, what, what, what do you mean? He says, you don't, you don't listen to this stuff? And the guy goes, no, I don't. And he says, well, um, this is what I listen to. And, and if you don't like it, you can walk. <laughs> and basically what he's saying is, I don't, need, I don't need somebody with your attitude in this car, is what he was really getting at. And uh, the guy kind of backed off. He, you know, he had made some disparaging remarks about self-help, motivational stuff, and, and he kind of backed off. So McConaughey said, um, listen, if you're, it, 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 cynicism is going to ruin you. It's going to ruin your career. It's deadly. He says, yeah, there's some really goofy stuff in these talks, but cynicism is awful. So I thought of that conversation uh, as reported on the podcast. I tried to find the article, and I'm not sure he was remembering it correctly, but I thought that was a good, uh, a good opening for what we're talking about here. So um, I thought of that conversation as I was working for, uh, through this Ecclesiastes passage, because it really contains the most cynical perspective that you will find in the entire Bible. And if McConaughey likes self-help and motivational talks, he would hate, despise most of Ecclesiastes. Most of the book is extremely cynical. So how cynical is it, you ask? Well, follow along in chapter one, a couple of portions of chapter one, and it continues in this way. I'll show you a few places, but follow along as a couple of our five ochres read the passage. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Verses 12 through 18. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. 
What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Pretty dark, huh? It's very dark. Unexpected words to find in the Bible. Meaningless, meaningless. Verse 2 says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why? Well, the teacher, as he's called throughout the book, uh, begins to explain in the verses that follow right after this statement, he begins to explain why everything is meaningless. And the basic gist of it is that you live and then you die and it's all over. But everything just goes on and on. The, the world, everything, the water, the, the wind, everything just continues on and on. And before long, future generations, they don't even remember you. You're lost. You're completely lost to them. So while speaking at Biola University, there's an Old Testament, uh, eminent Old Testament scholar named uh, Tremper Longman III. And he was talking on Ecclesiastes. And he summarized the book for this college audience. So please... Uh, excuse the crudeness for a moment, but he says, you can summarize the main part of the book of the book like this. Life sucks, then you die. And that's where he keeps coming to over and over and over again. So the teacher explores topics throughout the book. So I've listed some in, in your outline. The first one is to, he, uh, he, he applies himself to understanding wisdom. In other words, the kind of thing that Proverbs is about. He applies himself to understanding that. And in understanding it, it proves to be like chasing after the wind. Like you're trying to grab some wind. And it, it, there's, there's nothing to grab. Uh, he then explores pleasure. It's meaningless. He undertakes projects. His projects are building projects and gardens and music projects. He even includes building a harem as one of his projects. What was the outcome? He says, everything is meaningless. It's all meaningless. He explores our work, our labor. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Jonathan talked about how Proverbs speaks to our work life because God cares about our work life. The author, or the teacher, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says that's that's a bunch of bunk. All the work we do, it's meaningless. It's just like dark, dark, dark. I was uh, talking to a couple of people last night, um, to some of the tech guys this morning, and I said, no, it, it's, it's worse than you can imagine. Get to chapter seven, and he says, you know, being a fool, which Proverbs and wisdom literature deals with, being a fool, that's, that's just dumb. Don't be dumb. Being wise and righteous, it's pretty good. It usually, you know, it works out a lot of times for you, but I've seen righteous people die young, basically, in all their righteousness. And I've seen really wicked people 
live a long time and have a good time. So, best thing to do, don't be too good and don't be too bad. <laughs> That's his conclusion. You can read about it in chapter 7. That's the conclusion he comes to. It's a dark book. And every time some light appears in the book, it feels like maybe he's getting in line with the rest of the Bible and with the wisdom literature like Proverbs, but it's a juke. In football, it's a term where you pretend like you're going one way and, you know, the defender goes that way and then you go this way, right? It's, it's, a, it's a juke. And when you read through Ecclesiastes, don't, don't be fooled by the juke. Like, oh, he's, it, it, it is okay. This book, it's okay. He, he's going to take a beautiful idea and he is going to trash it eventually. You just have to keep reading. And as you keep reading, he's going to disavow anything positive that he said a little bit earlier. Those passages that you know from Ecclesiastes are beautiful. There is a time and a season under heaven. He's going to trash that idea if you just keep reading. Don't be fooled by the teacher. Now think back to that conversation between McConaughey and the, the journalist. This is what McConaughey calls awful stuff. <laughs> Cynicism. This is what he said will ruin your life. And, and so if you're wondering, what is this doing in the Bible? You're not alone. You're not alone. Many Jewish rabbis throughout the centuries have been like, what is this doing here? It probably doesn't really belong here. Christian scholars, pastors, Bible readers, like what is this doing in the Bible when they read the whole thing, when they really follow what, what he's saying? A lot of people have asked that question. And so we're going to look at a couple of interpretive keys that are oftentimes missed uh, to really understanding why this book, what it means, what its meaning is, what its ultimate message is, and, and, and why you would find it in the Bible. So we're going to look at some keys to unlocking Ecclesiastes. This is a very unique book. It's a very unique book. There's nothing quite like it in the Bible. So what is it doing in the Hebrew Bible? Apparently, when it got included into the canon of Scripture, they understood what it was for. It's not that nobody has understood it since then, but a lot of people have been confused since that point. And, and when somebody's going like this, this doesn't make sense, they're missing what the people who originally included it in the canon. Now, it's, our, in our, now it's in the Hebrew Bible. It's in our Bible because it was in the Hebrew Bible. It's kind of how it works. We have what was considered kind of the the scripture of like the Pharisees and that whole group, that's our scripture uh, today for the Old Testament. So to understand why Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles, you have to pay attention to these, these keys that unlock its meaning. They're not hidden, they're in plain sight, but sometimes the translations have, make some decisions that make it difficult on us, and I'll point one out to you as, uh, when we get a little bit farther along. But the keys are mostly in plain sight. Use the interpretive keys. Unlock its meaning. And before long, Ecclesiastes shows you a lot. And one of the things that was a surprise to me as I was preparing for this is it even shows you that cynicism can serve a greater purpose in our lives. Not being a cynic. What the cynic says. Okay, so um, it, it has such an important purpose in life that really Matthew McConaughey would be making a mistake to kick out the cynic. It might be good to hear what the cynic is saying. So we're going to watch a Bible project video on Ecclesiastes, part of their, Ecclesi uh, their wisdom literature series. Watch the one on Proverbs last week. Next week, we're looking at Job. They all fit together, but let's, uh, let's watch it right now. 
We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time, or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars. And those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals, death. All people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, The race doesn't always go to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life, then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, 
It takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate Hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So. What are we supposed to do with all of that? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final, much needed perspective on our journey into wisdom. All right, um, <clears throat> we're gonna go pretty quickly through this next section, which are the interpretive keys. They went over uh, many of them, uh, but here they are. The first key is that the book contains two voices, and if you don't get that, you're gonna be really, really lost in this book. Uh, because even though they talk about the surprising wisdom of what the cynic says, like I said, he never stays on the positives. He eventually trashes them or goes with a very unorthodox meaning unbiblical approach to life. So the book contains two voices. Um, the first voice is the author. So I want you to see it. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. When it says, says the teacher, none of the rest of the book is like that until the very end. He's introducing us to someone. There is an author behind this. It's the one who is writing that. And verse two is a summary of what the teacher teaches. Now, it's kind of questionable whether verses three through 11 are also a summary. Pretty good chance it might be. Because then the author says in verse 12, says I the teacher, uh, that it's not the author, but the teacher starts speaking there and it goes all the way into the last chapter uh, until about verse seven or something like that of the of 12 chapters. And so that's all gonna be the voice of the teacher. But we have, we start with the voice uh, of the author. And, um, and then the teacher is this unmotivational speaker as, as I'm calling it. Um, the author is gonna come back 
later in the story. We're going to take some moments to, to, you know, in a few moments, we're going to take some time to look at what the author says at the end. I think it's stronger than what the video might, might give you. It's his critique of the, speak, of the teacher is a lot more pointed than, than you might think. All right, so the second key is the teacher exposes or explores life under, sun, under the sun with very little of an above the sun perspective. So he's constantly talking about life under the sun, kind of like this is all there is, folks. Now, every once in a while, it peeks in that there is a God. And it's good to, it's good to you know, to think about that and to fear, fear God, fear, fear the Lord. But that's about it. That's about all you get above the sun. There's no afterlife. There is no future judgment. If you face injustice in this world, that's how it ends for you. It's just an unjust world, and that's how it ends, and there's nothing to look forward to. I think that's a little bit underemphasized in the video. And then the last one is Hevel. They covered it really well, uh, but I think it does also mean meaningless, and there's really some really good arguments to say. Yeah, sometimes it means paradox, enigma, just confusion. You can't really, you can't really hold on to meaning. Absolutely, it means that, but sometimes it just means meaningless. Because I can't grab a hold of it, everything is meaningless. I can't find a purpose for life. I can't find a reason for life. So we have three keys, two voices. The teacher looks at life as if it's all, all there is is life um, on this earth, and then hevel, smoke, paradox, meaninglessness. All right. Now, before we get to the critique of the teacher, I want to talk about the value of the teacher. And I want to talk about three Three personality types here. So I want you to, I want you to say, which, which one of these, as I go through them, which one of these kind of maybe describes you? And as it describes you, you might see what the value of the cynic is, okay, in, in this thing. All right, so uh, first one, uh, to the person who only wants to hear positive ideas, only wants to listen to the motivational speakers, the person that tends to take proverbial wisdom and turn it into promises. Jonathan talked about this last week. Proverbs is not promises. It's, it's general wisdom, things that make sense, work out many times, if not most of the time, for a lot of people, okay? But it's not promises. But for people who want to turn it into promises and everything that's rosy and beautiful and let's be positive, the teacher gives a dose of reality, a reality that will eventually smack them in the face. All right, so if that's you, read the teacher for a dose of of reality. Uh, we'll come back to this in a little bit. I'm not saying adopt a cynical attitude. Cynicism is awful. It really is awful. Uh, McConaughey is right uh, about that. In the interview, well, in what I think was the interview that this person was referring to in the podcast, this guy starts thinking about cynicism after talking to McConaughey. And he goes, you know, I've interviewed a lot of really famous people, really successful people. And one thing, as I thought back after listening to him, one thing I realized is not a one of them was a cynic. Not one. And he says, then I started looking at my own life and I saw how cynicism had derailed me in relationships, derailed me career-wise, made my life miserable. And, uh, and so, I mean, it, it, was, it was like, he had had this like, oh, you know, moment where he saw this stuff. And so cynicism has a role 
to say, it's not all going to work out if you just think positively. It's not. And for a lot of people in the world, it doesn't matter how positively they think. There is so much injustice in their system that they can't. It's, 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 it's just not going to work out for them. So second uh, person, to the person who is just living life, not asking any deep questions about why they exist and about purpose in life, the teacher serves as a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. So if this is you, you know, you just, I'm not very philosophical. I really don't think about my purpose in life very much. I just kind of do my thing. If that's you, uh, hopefully the cynic, if you go and you read everything he says, you're going you're gonna to see the teacher is going to serve as a wake-up call. Uh, how important is it? This is, this is super important. I, I want to I spend a little bit, a few moments uh, on this. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor and author, Tim Keller, he, 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 he kind of explains the importance this way. I've adapted his illustration a little bit to our setting. But he says, somebody, suppose somebody comes up to you, somebody who's a friend, somebody you trust, and they say, I'd like you, go, I'd like you to go this Tuesday over to the parking lot at Jerry's Foods and sit in the parking lot in your car for two hours. Take some stuff to do while you're there. You can you know, answer emails, you can scroll, you know, whatever uh, things you scroll. Uh, take something, maybe some work with you that you can do while you're sitting in the car, but I want you to go there Tuesday, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., sit in the parking lot. What would, you, what would you say? Even if this person was somebody you really trusted, you'd you'd say, why? <laughs> why? If I'm going to sit for two hours in the parking lot over there, even if I have stuff to do, I, I got to have a reason. I got to have some purpose in that. I'm not just going to, I'm just not going to go sit there and, and do for no reason at all, right? So Keller follows that with this. He says, the philosopher says, you will ask a question about purpose for how you spend Tuesday afternoon. But will you ask a question like that about how you're spending your life? Can you answer these questions? What is your life about? How do you know your life is not a waste? What will you actually accomplish with your life? Um, think about that. Two hours, I gotta know why. My whole life, eh, not, not that important um, for, for a lot of us. All right, so if you're that person, maybe this will get you to start asking some questions because the cynic says, there is nothing to live for. But the author is going to tell us, yes, there is. All right, all right, so here's the third one, uh, the third person. To the person who is playing the cynic in their life, they, they're kind of cynical, okay, so they, they're the cynic, the teacher's musings are meant to make them gag. Now, this is my own personal theory, all right, so you can take it or leave it. This is, this is how I see it. The author is going to offer a different perspective at the end. Uh, it's two verses long, but right before that, a few moments before that, we find out that this whole time he's been teaching his son. This whole introduction, everything he's been, he's been teaching his son. So, um, I, 
you know, when you read this, and you saw it in the video, this is depressing. i kind of given you some reasons why you might go, this is like, ah, why is this in the Bible, all of that. It's kind of, I thought of the old school dad who wants to steer his kid away from alcohol or tobacco. And how does the old school dad do it? I'm not recommending this, but how does the old school dad do it? He says, here, smoke this, inhale. Here, drink this, guzzle it down, get a little bit of a spin in your head until they're throwing up, right? That's the old school. And this feels to me a little like, because he spends all this time listening to this awful stuff that can be very helpful. And at the end, he's going to say very, very little to the son. It's almost like, did you gag on it? Do you want to wind up like this guy? with no hope whatsoever, just miserable in life. So that's my, my little, little take on it. And if you're the cynic, gag on it. Go ahead, read the book and gag on it. So the book of Ecclesiastes argues that there's more to life than life under the sun, and there's more to God than serving our self-centered purposes. We're gonna see this, all right? There's more to life than life under the sun. There's, there is more. There's more life after this life. And God is not here just like kind of like the proverbial, if I just do everything, God, he's going to serve all my purposes. I'm going to have the life that I always, you know, wanted right now in every single way. Um, all right. So beyond criticism, we're going to move here to the very end. Um, the author's critique is more pointed than many translations lead on. I have to share this with you because this was like, this, this kind of blew my mind because as I was preparing for this, I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading, where is this gonna go, where is this gonna go? And I get to the end to where the author talks and it completely threw me and I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> this ending is not good. I don't know how I'm gonna preach this book because this is, not, this is not a good ending. So turn to chapter 12. And uh, look at verse 8. Same thing that we read earlier, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, you haven't read everything in between, or at least not like really recently. So you need to understand, this is the voice of the author coming back in. There was nothing like this before. It was all the teacher to the teacher all the way. And this is where he comes back in. Weirdly, the dividing line, you know, how... Bible translations put in headings. It should have been one verse earlier. It doesn't make sense where it is. But um, understand that the, the, the author is starting to, to speak again. And look what it says in verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, uh, yeah, not yet, not yet. That's where we, okay. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. I tell you, when, when I read that, my heart sunk, because I had a theory going in my head. And then the author just says, and I'd watched the video, and I'd read it before, you know, and all this, and I thought, ugh, I, 
I don't, I don't think what he said was true. It was true on many levels. Yeah, it's true. You can, you, can, you can be good and you can be bad. And the bad person lives a long time. The good person, their life ends you know, in a horrible way. Yeah, that's true. But the conclusion that, therefore, don't be too good, because you're going to miss on too much fun, and don't be too bad, because that's like a way of ruin, that's not good. You know, I, I, can I preach that? You know, and if I did, what, what would you do? I would expect you to leave. <laughs> I would really expect you to leave, you know? So, um, you know, be a little discerning. You'd go, no, that's, that's kind of a sickening conclusion, Henry. I don't, I don't really see that. So it doesn't make much sense. So Tremper Longman, one, that, that scholar, one of the top Old Testament scholars in the world, argues that the NIV actually made some wrong decisions. Now, translation work is really, really, really difficult to take a language, an ancient language on top of that and put it into present day, you know, language. It, and, and this is a tough passage to translate. And he says, I just think they landed in the wrong place. And it's led to a lot of confusion for people who use the NIV. I don't remember, but I don't think the ESV is very much better. Because I know a lot of you use the ESV. I don't think it's very much better either. So they're, they're making some decisions. So um, he says, really, the New Living Translation captures the nuances of this passage better. And just truth in advertising, he was one of the preparers of that translation. <laughs> All right, so you've got to know that. All right. So uh, here's what the New Living Translation translates those same two verses. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise. I go into why how from the Hebrew he comes up with that, but it's, it's legitimate. And he taught the people everything he knew. Yep, he did. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. He says that throughout the whole thing. So he's using his own words. I tried to come up with the right words. I tried to come up with the right understanding of this. And he's saying, this is, this is if you live in the South, this is where you say, oh, bless his heart, which means, okay, he didn't, he didn't accomplish it. You know, this is, this is a subtle dig at the teacher. All right, so we're going to go on with the uh, NLT, the New Living Translation. Um, the words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, it's really my son, let me give you some further advice. Be careful. For the writing of books, for writing books is endless. And much study wears you out. Everything I just, he's, he's referring to the teacher. It's, um, and then he says, that's the whole story. Now, Longman says, it's really very abrupt. It's almost like enough with the teacher. Let's get on with what's really important. All right, so the author is a, probably a lot more critical. If you go, well, how can I trust any translation? That's why you should always look at, you know, if you're, something throws you off, look at many translations because decisions are being made behind those trans, translations. And if you're reading it in Hebrew, we'd go, oh, do I take it this way or do I take it this way? And that's how language works. All right, so... Um, This just happened last night, too. Do I have time to do what I want to do? He says, let's have the, the next slide. 
the author says one and a half verses to counter everything. He says, do these three things. Fear God, keep his commands, and then he gives a reason. For God will bring every deed into judgment. That's his answer to his son. Now, that seems kind of like a head scratcher. Why did you give so much time to this other guy and spend so little time refuting him? And then this is what you gave us. This is it. And yet this is brilliant. This is, you know, we've talked about this kind of thing a lot around here. This is like a major, like in a movie, a major Easter egg. This is supposed to be like, that's what he's doing. All right. Now to get there, I want to show you a two-minute portion of another Bible Project video. Let's, Let's watch it. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. All right. So what does that have to do with this? Let's, um, Torah, law, prophets, writings. Three things that you should do. Fear God is like in the writings, especially the wisdom ones and the Psalms, the poetry, this is a theme in the wisdom writings, the major theme in like Proverbs. All right. Uh, Keep the commandments, uh, the laws, judgment. This is the message that the prophets brought. You won't find very much about a future judgment in here, but you find the prophet's constantly speaking of this future judgment. In a sense, what the author is saying to his son 
is spend your life here for answering questions. Spend your life here for answering questions. Fear God. Um, keep the commandments. Prepare for a coming judgment. It's, it's right there. It's, it's a much bigger answer than we might, we might think. Now, where does Jesus come into this? Where does the gospel come into this? We have the rest of the story, fortunately. We have Jesus. Um, and we have this truth, that Jesus enters our meaninglessness. This is his story, to bring meaning and purpose to our lives. Jesus enters our meaninglessness to bring, meaninglessness to bring um, meaning and purpose to our lives. The, the teacher rightly describes the broken world that we live in, the hell that we've created by choosing to be our own gods, by deciding we can determine right and wrong, by um, deciding what is most important, that we, we are the center and we decide what is most important. That's the world that we live in. And the teacher was lacking some really important things from his own faith tradition. He was cynical. He was without hope. He didn't believe in a future judgment or just chose not to talk about it at all. As we come to the Gospels, as we come to the rest of the New Testament, we find that Jesus came to redeem us from this broken world, this hopeless world. He redeemed us by subjecting himself. He did it by subjecting himself to this broken, meaningless, crazy world. And, and even on the cross, he cries out to God the Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the world. He experiences the curse of this world. The, the Apostle Paul in Galatians actually says, he became a curse for us. He takes he takes it on himself. We put our faith in Jesus. He takes for us the curse of living. He takes the, the, the curse, uh, uh, the, the punishment, the, the consequences of having pushed God away. He takes it on himself, our sin. And he gives us his rightness, his righteousness. And because of his redemption, we can experience meeting again. And so he restores meaning, our jobs, our work. Whatever work we do can have meaning. Wisdom, love, even pleasure. The things that the critic trashed, it can have meaning. Pleasure can even have meaning. And in the end when we die, it's a new beginning. It's not the end. It's not like nobody's going to remember you in 100 years. It's like who cares? <laughs> because there is a new beginning. And we look forward to a purposeful eternity in God's kingdom where we have purpose, where we have never-ending fellowship with God, his presence, and where we have each other. That's, that's the story. That's the meaning. That's, that's the rest of the story. The, the author gets us partway there, just like the whole Old Testament gets us partway there. But Jesus comes into that world and he restores that world and gives us, gives us hope. Let's begin our time of response now uh, as we take the bread and the cup, responding to what we've heard as God has spoken. Not just the, the facts of the scripture, but how he's spoken to your heart in the midst of this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, 
He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, the one who does bring meaning, doesn't just bring meaning by waving a wand, he brings meaning by entering into our meaninglessness, by taking our sin on himself. If you never receive that, we receive it by faith. We can't earn it. We receive it by faith. Maybe today's the day you put your faith in Jesus. And if you have any questions about that or how to do that, how do you put your faith in Jesus, I'll be up, right, up front here and you can come up. We can have a conversation. Um, but that's not the only reason to come up. Come up to say hi. Come up to um, just you had a thought. Or if you need prayer for something else, I'd love, love to pray with you. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. For it can speak to the realities of our lives the things that leave us puzzled, the things that are like smoke. We can't, paradoxes, enigmas that are in our life, times when we feel like life is meaningless, but your word speaks to it, Father. And you speak to it. And you have spoken to it, especially in Jesus. And I pray that we would hear what you're saying and that we would live in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.